Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, or if you're with Michael in Sydney, Australia, good morning. How are you, Michael? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's um, an overcast morning here. Well, it's rather hard in my in my cabana of cruelty, my writing room, to sort of stop the morning light sort of making me look like I'm a shadow. <laughs> well, it's raining and cold here, which is why you see me in my leather jacket and my scarf, because, uh, and you know what, the sports gods... It never, ra the, it never rains in Arizona, does well, it? Well, it has rain. We've had more rain in Arizona since August than Seattle. Oh, wow. It's just been crazy. But we just finished up with the Super Bowl and the Phoenix Open, and it was a gorgeous weekend. And amazingly, as soon as it was over, I, I, I it watched. got cold and rainy. I mean, yeah. You know, Maybe I the watched, NFL I, I has watched, a pipeline. I watched the highlights of the Super Bowl. I yeah. didn't, um, didn't watch the whole game. It goes on too long for me. <laughs> it does go on a long time, but it was great. And I'm convinced the NFL has some deal with the above powers to prevent this weather. But anyway, we are here to talk about Lying Beside You, which is Michael's third book with Cyrus Haven. But before we get to that, since it is actually still Valentine's Day, here in the US, even though it's tomorrow in Australia. I wanna show everybody my Valentine because for some miracle, this Valentine looks exactly like our puppy, Scooter, who is, as I told Michael, about to come home from the groomer and he will be all this fluffy, he will have a bow, he will smell amazing and it will last until if we're lucky tomorrow morning. So I don't know how my husband ever found this perfect. It even it even feels like a puppy when you when you cover it. I love it. So Michael, how did you spend Valentine's Day? Oh, well, sadly, I was uh, on the road driving. Uh, had a long drive back from Canberra, which is our nation's capital. And so it was a McDonald's drive-through with my wife. I did apologize to her and say, I will try to make it up to her sometime in the future, but um, it couldn't be helped. I had, uh, I had a big event on in, in Canberra um, yesterday and then we had to get, get home last night. So it'll be, it'll be, you know, look, every night is Valentine's Day night for my wife, let's face it. Wow, isn't that a nice thing to say? <laughs> She's you know, not listening in now. That's why I know I can say that. Now I love it. So, in fact, yesterday, by our standards, was Michael's publication day. And today, Tuesday, February 14th, is, in fact, the publication day. But if I remember right, Michael, the UK publishes on Thursday. Now, the UK publishers were actually months ago. Oh, um, they were. Yeah, and and Canada was about um, ten days ago, but the UK, the UK, and I and I know I get a lot of um, irate American readers of mine at saying because they see my social media posts and and they go, well, what do you mean we can't get it until February? Um, and unfortunately, it's just the way the nature of you know um, American publishing they they just they want greater lead times before they publish your books, and I delivered too late for them to get it out by sort of August, September last year for their point of view. Um, but no, it's, it's never ideal when the book is in, at coming out at different places at different times because the really, really eager fans will find a way of accessing the book. They'll, they'll order it in. They'll, they'll know someone in another part of the world who they can sort of, who will get it for them or whatever. But um, I'm just thrilled that it's finally out in America and... Uh, and hope everyone enjoys it. I'm sure they will. I certainly did. I mean, actually, the real danger of having the book come out at different times is that there are always spoilers because somebody will post a review in which they give away the entire book. Yeah, and say, I know. My advice know. to American readers is try not to read any reviews of Lying Beside You until you've actually read the book um, because Michael's very good at tricky plots, which is why he has won two gold daggers and two... Ned Kelly Awards, which is Australia's version of the Oscars for authors. <laughs> Although it's I love the idea that it was named for a hangman, which I think is wonderfully Australian. Yeah, name, name, name for a bushranger, which is our sort of, I guess, the. What, I mean, what would be, I mean, in, in Britain, they'd call it a highway highwayman, like a highway robber. Uh, we called them bushrangers. In America, they'd be outlaws. I mean, like a Jesse James type. Yeah type figure uh, Ned Kelly no he's he's our most famous outlaw um and uh and the, our, our big crime awards are named after him which is quite fitting 
It is very nice. So there's a nifty little introduction that came with my, this is my advanced reading copy um, because the real books are down at the bookstore and I'm at home in my library. But let me just share a few highlights of this with you. Michael is a former investigative journalist whose best-selling psychological thrillers have been translated into 25 languages, hence all the different publication dates. He's twice won the UK's Gold Dagger, which I mentioned, for best crime novel, and twice won a Ned Kelly Award, which is Australia's best crime novel award. Um, and as I mentioned, actually, Michael's been to see us only once that I can recall. Breaks my heart. Do you remember when you came to Scottsdale? I do. I remember it very well. And uh, and I think every time we do, and obviously for COVID meant we had to do Zoom events. And each time I sort of seem to promise you at the end, I promise you, Mike, next, Barbara, next time I will I'll be there in person. <laughs> You know, you're a classic unreliable narrator. It is a long way. I know it is. But you know what? Australia has sent us authors. We just had Jane Harper here week before last. Suari Gentle has been here. Quite a few. Uh, Durfla McTurney. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and I do. And it's funny because I have a my eldest child lives in Nashville now, was in L.A., lives in Nashville. So I did spend Christmas uh, over your neck of the woods, but it didn't correspond with um, the publication. So, well, let me just pause and say that a visit from you does not need to coincide with a publication. I should next time I come to America to visit my, my eldest child, I will make a point of coming to to see you. That would be really nice. You're going to fly right overhead on your way to Nashville, so it's not that hard to drop down. Yeah, yeah. And besides, you have such an enormous backlist that, you know, we're never going to be without books that we can discuss. We could go all the way back and talk about The Night Fairy, which was the book that Michael came to see us with, which had one of my oh, You remember that? Oh, wow. I well, couldn't... I'm never going to forget it because your plot was so Amazing. And I don't get suckered all that often, but you really surprised me with one of the twists in that book. I thought, seriously? I mean, that was so clever. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad you um I'm glad you think that's my wife's of all my books, that's my wife's favorite book that I've ever written. She, well, she, it's my favorite too because I mean the originality goes a long way with me, and you know that was one in which I thought you scored huge points. But seriously, next time you go to visit your son, regardless of where you are in the publication process, um, do come by. That would okay. be. Lovely. But we're going to be talking now. The whole point of this, in fact, was lying beside you, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and Cyrus Haven is a really interesting character. But Michael has written at least one other series character in addition to his standalones, which, in fact, The Night Fairy was. And that was the Joe O'Loughlin series. Have you abandoned Joe at this point or are you just giving him a rest? No, I think... I mean, it's 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 hard to say never, you know, that I'll never bring him back. But I guess one of the issues with Joe O'Loughlin and for those who, for people watching who may not have, have read them, um, I never intended to write a series when I created the Joe O'Loughlin character. I thought it would be a standalone book. And I love the I love the tragic irony of creating a main character who had this brilliant mind but a crumbling body. So I gave him early onset Parkinson's. He was sort of the anti-Jack Reacher and the anti-James <laughs> Bond and the anti-Jason Bourne. He was going to have to use his incredible intelligence and insights into human behaviour to solve the crimes. He wasn't going to be out, out fight, out drive, you know, out bed, you know, uh, out shoot everyone else in the in the story. Um, but in a sense, by giving Joe O'Loughlin Parkinson's, I created a use by date for him because if. Yeah, as I did, I aged him in real time over the course of 10 years and, and nine books. Um, and, and his disease so, slowly progressed. So I knew there was a point of time where I couldn't carry on doing Joe. And, uh, but I've always, you know, I, I, I've done it very much. I always think it's very much like Mike, Michael Connolly um, did with, with Bosch when he, when he, you know, Bosch's daughter enters the police force, the, you know, LAPD, and it, it gave, gives Michael that opportunity at some point. I thought, well, if Bosch gets to the point where he's got a, you know, well, you know, you can't write about him anymore, you can't keep investigating, you can always bring his daughter into the story and have her as the main character. And so I've created a situation with Joe Lockham that his daughter Charlie, in the very last book, is at university studying psychology. And so I've left 
a little window open for myself where I could potentially bring her back and him back as mentor into, into a future book. You certainly could. Have you ever considered a prequel before you got Parkinson's to see what yeah, we want to see? One of the great problems with that, um, Barbara, is because he was always an accidental investigator. He was a clinical psychologist that gets drawn, dragged by kicking and screaming often into these investigations because he wants to spend his life helping people get over their sort of trauma and, and psychological problems, not to delve into, but he, you know, he's not a professional forensic psychologist that that is hired to look into these crimes. He's very much someone who's dragged into them. And so the very first book, The Suspect, was the very first crime he'd ever been asked to look at. So it becomes hard to do a prequel, given that that's pretty much established in that first book, that that was the first time he'd ever had anything to do with the police or been asked to profile right. a, a killer. And um, yeah, so that sort of li limited me. Because again, I, when I wrote, I honestly thought, you know, typical you know I don't know it was typical from my point of view when I wrote that first novel I wrote 117 pages which triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair and it got sold into 20 odd translations in three hours but up until that point I honestly thought that if I was lucky enough to get a novel published it would sell 12 copies and my mother would buy eight of them and the thought that I would you know 20 years later be be here talking to you with my 17th novel you know, it was just beyond the possibilities of anything I'd ever imagined. So I didn't sort of plan to have this sort of long career. You know, um, I did. I never, I haven't got a story arc that says what comes next. I finish each book convinced it's the last one I'll ever write. And, uh, and then I hope I can come up with another idea for the next one. Wow, to live in perpetual panic. <laughs> Not panic, but... Perpetual, what? What's the word I want? Not anticipation, but the opposite of it. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, because I envy those writers that simply finish a book and they open their bottom drawer and it's full of ideas and they just pluck another one out and thinking, oh, this one will do. Um, because, um, you know, yeah, I'm the opposite. I finished thinking that every decent description, one liner, plot twist, it's all gone on this empty vessel. It's, you know, I have to get a proper job. All used up. Oh, poor thing. You know, I had a really fascinating conversation. We do Jonathan Kellerman's book launch and only event. Um, and we did it last night. And as you may know, Alex Delaware is also a professional psychologist. You know, you might want to watch it. I will send you the link because it lives okay. up there forever. I did not well, actually, I did notice it on the um on the Facebook page. Well, you, you, I'm serious. You really ought to listen to it. How Jonathan created Alex and how he got into police work and why he doesn't accept a job from the LAPD, but prefers to keep himself as a, he has a kind of tunnel in um, without actually being employed by the LAPD and how Jonathan goes about it. Jonathan is in fact a brilliant psychologist, but not a forensic psychologist, but he too, um, is interested in helping people. And the book has a lot to do with a very naive character who, in an effort to help people, creates a, you know, it, I, as I said to Jonathan, and I've said this before, a really great mystery makes you mourn the villain. I'm sorry, mm. mourn the victim. Um, mm. You want to really care about the I person who died and feel it as a loss. And Jonathan really excelled himself with the victim. In um, the book we discussed last night, I'm going blank. It's unnatural something. Anyway. Um, no, it's very true. I mean, it's one of the things. I mean, I worked, uh, I mean, my knowledge of psychology comes because when I was a ghostwriter and before I was a journalist initially and then I was a ghostwriter and I worked as a ghostwriter with a man called Paul Britton, who is the pioneer of offender profiling in the UK and worked on many of the most celebrated crimes through the 90s and 2000s in the UK, like Fred and Rosemary West, the House of Horrors, he was involved in that investigation. Um, and, and so, but Paul Britton always talked to me about, um, in terms of you talking about the importance of the victim, you know, often when you, when a psychologist is called into a crime scene, they only have the victim, and the only way they can discover and think about the psychological clues of, is to look at the victim's life and the victim's personality and the victim's behavior and by knowing the victim they can understand how that killer and the victim interacted in those those minutes before the death and and it's it's about recreating and um the victim in your mind before you begin starting to try to walk into the walk through the in the shoes or to look through the eyes of the the killer
Absolutely. And the, the victim's ties to the potential suspects for whatever happened. But you'd also find there's a shadow, not an outright villain, but a shadow character in the book. And I think Jonathan does a really clever thing with him. So I, I really recommend it to you. Yeah, anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Cyrus. Um, and this book opens, I think, in a in a really tough situation. And I, I've often wondered how people would cope with it, which is to say that Cyrus's older brother. Well, you tell it. It's your story. Yeah. But I mean, I uh, think it opens, it it open, I mean, Cyrus has got a tragic backstory. Um, at the age of 13, he came home from football practice, um, sort of six o'clock of an evening and discovers his parents are dead and his twin sisters are dead. And they have been killed by his um, paranoid schizophrenic older brother, Elias, who is sent to 20, he's 13 when this happens, it's 20 years ago, but Elias is sent to a secure psychiatric hospital and, and, um, and Cyrus still visits him. Um, but the book opens with Elias after 20 years applying to be released from the psychiatric hospital saying that he's better now he's been medicated properly you know he he obviously was had paranoid schizophrenia and you know there's he didn't know what he was doing when he committed those crimes and cyrus initially his initial dilemma is he's sitting there saying do i accept this man back in my life i mean he's my only family do i forgive him and it's it is a real moral dilemma that idea of whether you know, it's what reading groups have talked a lot about this book is to say, you know, could I forgive someone who had done that, who, who did that to me? Um, and Cyrus, given that he's a, you know, a forensic psychologist, he above all people should understand mental illness and understand that his brother did not understand what he was doing. Um, but still a huge leap, isn't it? To forgive someone mm -hmm. destroys your childhood and takes away your entire family. And so... That is the initial dilemma. The book opens at a mental health tribunal hearing where, where Cyrus is listening to all these experts talk to the, the judges and adjudicators saying, no, no, he's, he's well enough to be released into the community. And Cyrus has to decide, but do I want him back? Do I want him back in my life? Well, but the other problem is that if he is released, he's going to be released to Cyrus. He's not going to be released to some... So Cyrus not only has to accept the idea of release, and forgiveness, but he also has to undertake a caregiver role. And if I remember right, the release is sort of probationary. It's not like they just turned him loose and said, okay, you're done. No, it initially starts off as, uh, as normally happens in this. It's like a, a day release just for during daylight hours. And then it might be an overnight release and then over a weekend release. And all of it is, is a staged process before they decide whether someone should be, in, in Elias's case, should be released you know, full time. And you're right. And so it's not just a case of of knowing he's out there somewhere. He's going to be coming to live with Cyrus. He's going to be, Cyrus is going to be is, yeah, I guess Kara is, I mean, he, he's chaperone in a sense. And um and watching for those clues as to whether whether Elias is coping, because it's a huge thing. But after 20 years, I mean, when you think how the world has moved on over the last 20 years, I mean, things like streaming TV and, and Spotify and all the, I mean, it's all new to Elias. I mean, he's been locked away. I mean, so much of the world, I mean, smartphones, the fact that people spend their life on these smartphones, all of it is completely new to Elias. Um, and that also, he's always had this incredibly, in a, in a, in a psychiatric hospital, his, his day is regimented. He knows exactly when he eats and, food's provided and activities are done and suddenly on his own it's all him and he's got to cope with that sort of you know pressure of even just finding things to do and um yeah and you sort of know that it's going to you know he's he is you always feel I think right from the opening chapter that he's this ticking bomb you know you can always sort of hear the and you're just hoping that it's a slow tick and that it never starts speeding up well, it's up, it's up to Cyrus to provide that structure in addition to observing clues and trying to decide whether um, Elias is better. We'll get to the fact that Cyrus already has somebody living with him who um, may not find this blend particularly 
easy to cope with. But, you know, there's also just because Cyrus might decide that he can accept his brother back, the rest of the community may not feel that way at all. And so there's outside pressure very often. Um, mm -hmm. And we see it around here when, you know, um, sex offenders are released and, you know, neighborhoods don't quite know what to do with it. There's yeah. also, I mean, I can draw back to my own legal experience. I've never forgotten. There was a case in Virginia when I was a lawyer there in which somebody who um, had been imprisoned for violent behavior and threats to his wife and, you know, they pleaded mental illness and on and on. And the guy was released and within hours, he tracked down his wife and killed her. I mean, never yeah. deviated, you know, and all the psychologists or prison people who said, oh, no, he's going to be fine. You know, we can let him out, you know. And so there's a not surprising distrust in the community as to whether the people mm -hmm. who evaluate Elias actually yeah. can or and, even and, know what they're doing. Yeah, it is the great dilemma because, you know, we tend to, you know, in any community, we don't hear about the successful people that are sort of, you know, released from prison and, and go on to lead, you know, full lives and, and honest lives and law-abiding lives. We, we hear about mistakes where someone gets out and reoffends. And, um, and it's interesting, there are figures that I give in this book, you know, when people are released and, you know, people like Elias with, with paranoid schizophrenia have about an 80% chance of finishing back up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, not necessarily for having committed the same sort of crime that they went in there initially for, but yeah, no, it's a huge, it's, it's, um, it's an issue. And it's one of those ones that I read a lot about those sort of cases that you're talking about where people were released and, and reoffended. And similarly, I read a lot of stories, amazing stories, how, you know, and some of them I allude to in the book um, when, when, when Cyrus is talking about forgiveness whether, whether forgiving someone releases a burden from you. He, he recalls, you know, and this is based on real life cases, you know, a mother who'd lost their only child, you know, had been murdered, but in court in the victim impact statement forgave the person that killed her son. And it's, uh, how can anyone forgive? How could anyone do that? But, um, you know, and this woman sobbed and sort of said it was like having released this incredible weight from her chest when to, you know, and um, I wanted to explore all those areas of, 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 I wanted to explore this idea of forgiveness, you know, whether it's something, because I think it's possible to forgive someone too early. I think it's possible to forgive someone who doesn't deserve to be forgiven, who, who don't, doesn't show contrition. But I also to a degree think that to go through life with this attitude that you will never forgive does burden you um, enormously. And there is a weight that can be lifted by saying, you know, it's like when friends do things that you don't like, you know, we all know people that will just cut them off, never, ever, ever. And others that will go, okay, I accept the fact that that was a mistake. I will forgive them and hopefully they won't do it again. Well, let me tell you, I've learned some very hard lessons managing a staff for 33 years um, along, along those lines. But, you know, that one of the, as I was relating that earlier case, one of the really big debates is, you know, what, what do you owe the community in terms of safety as opposed to what do you owe an individual, an individual who may, in fact, you know, have been rehabilitated? How do you, you know, yeah. how do you balance the, the rights and, and the life of the, of the individual, the offender, yeah. against the welfare of the community. And yeah. if you guess it wrong, it's really horrendous. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, there is a famous, I think I allude this, I think in this book, but, but maybe it's a previous one. I allude to a very famous British jurist who talked about the fact that when it comes to deciding, you know, um, guilt, this idea you, and you, I'm sure you've often heard the term, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather 10 guilty people walk free than seeing an innocent person convicted now it's quite interesting you talk to people and some are considering no no no. i don't want to see 10 killers walk free i'd rather see one innocent person go to jail but it's all fine if it's not you <laughs> if you're the innocent person or if it's someone right. you know you know but it's that we always we make these decisions all the time in terms of our our judicial system um 
you know, in terms of, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, in terms of conviction, you know, or whatever. Um, and similarly, you know, it, it used to be with mental illness before we established uh, a, a rule of law where if someone was incapable of understanding their actions, they could not be found guilty. They would be found innocent on the grounds of insanity. Before that, it was called the wild beast test. Basically, if someone was scratching at themselves and, and defecating in the corner and like a wild animal, that's the only reason that they could never be convicted of a crime. And then as the psychiatry and psychology developed, it was, it was deemed that they were, we were gonna to have to have a system where experts would say, okay, was someone capable of understanding their actions? And so you either just have a society that simply say, no, we just lock them up. We lock them up, we never let them go. We don't take that risk. Or you weigh that up, as you say, with individual freedoms as to whether, whether someone can be rehabilitated. And if you, you know, if you don't believe rehabilitation is possible, then you're going to suggest that, you know, you may as well execute them then and there rather than spend the taxpayer dollars on keeping them alive. Well, I have to say that in a fairly selfish spirit, I'm always relieved when one of these mass shooters or a serial killer or even a terrorist ends up dead um, before we ever get to the judicial yeah, system. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I, I guess one of the issues, and maybe because I was a journalist for so long, and again, journalists t tend not to cover um, when cover stories when things go right. They cover stories when things go wrong. And so I ca covered, you know, miscarriages of justice where basically you know, through either the police desperation to get a conviction, evidence was either withheld or fabricated or whatever. But, you know, periodically we see these people being released, have spent 20, 25 years in prison and suddenly DNA proves it wasn't them and they'd always maintain their innocence, you know. And, and again, this is why, you know, I personally, and I know everyone's got a right to their opinion, I, I don't believe in the death penalty only because I've seen too many mistakes made you know and if we had a perfect system where we knew absolutely that there's no way an innocent person could be could be convicted of a crime then i might think differently but we don't have a perfect system and i just uh, and i've seen too many miscarriages of justice for me to believe that we can you know but by the same token as you say when it's absolute cut and dried when you've got a mass shooter who is you know, it's clear who then, then I, you know, I feel, you know. I just want to save us all the trauma, the clickbaits, you know, the expense, the whole bit. Expense, yeah, as you say, because keeping someone, keeping someone in prison is, right. is more expensive than keeping them in the most luxurious hotel room you can imagine. I mean, the cost is, is enormous. Yeah, no, it's tremendous. So, you know, these are all moral issues that we're not going to solve in a crime novel, that's for sure. But while we're thinking about, and one of the advantages of reading crime fiction is that uh, there are so often moral or ethical issues that arise. Um, mm. I like the idea, this I've frequently heard quoted, in which I think is that it tends to cut along the edge of social change and examine these difficult issues through the medium of fiction and yeah. make us all I, think. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's one of those things that um, crime fiction does very well. It used to be, it used to be a lot more in the, in the remit of literary fiction to examine, to examine sort of big social issues of, you know, crime, punishment, justice, you know, uh, redemption or whatever. But I think now it's very much what crime novel, the best of the crime novels are doing, um, shining a light into the dark corners of, of society and the human mind um, and, and examining, you know, uh, examining them. And, and, but doing it in such a way that it's not preaching, it's just a story. You're telling, hopefully, a cracking good story. But along the way, you have these moral sort of dilemmas and questions that people do ask themselves, what would I do in that situation? Would Absolutely I true. And also, thankfully, say it, they're not in that situation. It reminds me, P.D. James, years and years ago, talked about the comfort of reading a crime novel. And she said, you know, you lie on the bed and you know that the footstep on the stair is not coming for you. <laughs> Which I think... Also, I remember she also said that... Um, only murder will do when it comes to crime novels because she felt as though 
murder was the only crime you cannot make recompense for. You cannot right. bring someone back. And that she also felt as though one of the things that people liked to do with it, as you say, in the comfort of their home, was that she felt as though we were all capable of murder in the right circumstances, pushed hard enough with all the buttons pushed. And a little part of us wanted to just explore that dark side about, you know, um, when we read crime fiction. Well, she was, um, I had a, did a wonderful event conversation with her in Scottsdale many years ago. I think it was 1996, if I remember. And she gave an impassioned, at least hour long in our discussion, just talked about these very things that we're talking about, how crime fiction allows you to, you know, um, examine so many deep issues and how um, her version of her view of murder that you just discussed. And it was really profound and everybody was engaged. And then when the questions opened up, the first thing that happened is some guy stood up and he said, when are you going to write a real book? Oh, Never forgotten that, you know. I mean, so well, there was, you know, there was a long time, and particularly true in Britain. I can remember writing to the Times as part of a study about it, where crime fiction was really um, put down as genre fiction, and you know, the only real respect went to literary fiction, and yeah. it took, oh, it, it no, to, took to, some to huge degree, breakthroughs. Yeah, to a degree, it, 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 I mean, the, the, the late great Peter Temple. Um, Australian crime writer who was the first Australian to win the gold dagger um and uh he was the first he also won Miles Franklin which is our highest literary award so he wrote a crime novel which won our highest literary award and no one anywhere in the world could could think of when that had happened anywhere in the world and uh a judge of a former uh, chair of the judging panel of the Booker Prize in the UK was asked if they could ever or see a situation where a crime writer would be shortlisted for the booker. And he said that would be like putting a, a cart horse in the Grand National, just like a, the big horse, ride, a cart horse in the Grand National. I mean, that's how dismissive he was, you know, of the idea, you know. Um, but the world, I think it has slow, it is slowly moving, but there's still a degree of, of, of that exists, that snobbery, that literary snobbery still exists. Well, Right. Well, we can't we can't change that, but it's worth thinking about. Um, but let's talk a little bit here about Evie, because the other person in there's a trio here. And the third leg of this book is Evie Cormack, who, as I mentioned earlier, lives with Cyrus. So and she her life is truly going to be affected if Elias comes to live with Cyrus because she already lives in his house. So talk to us about Evie. Yeah, Evie, Evie, um, I mean, this is the third book in a series, but each of them can be read as, as standalones. But Evie, initially, uh, Cyrus comes across Evie in a, in a secure children's home. Um, and uh, she is petitioning to be released, um, claiming to be 18, but nobody knows her true age or her true name because at, the, at a very young age, she was found hiding in a secret room in a house where a man had been tortured to death. And um, and she refused to reveal how she got there or her name. So the courts have given her a name. They nominated an age for her. Um, and uh, one of the things Cyrus discovers very early on that Evie has a skill. It's not a gift. It's actually a curse. Evie can tell when someone is lying. And um, and this has sort of been an. an Cyrus has always been protected because he he figures if people discover that Evie's got this this skill, they will want to experiment on her. They will want to you know exploit her. So he realised she's such a damaged young woman. She's now a young woman in this book that he he's very protective of her. Um, but he's also very, as you say, well aware that when Elias comes back into this house, you can sort of see these two are gonna clash, and mm -hmm. and and Evie is obviously very protective of Cyrus because it's one of those things that it's as though the two of them are incredibly damaged people and together they're going to save each other and so Evie's she's the sort of person that says I don't think you should forgive your brother I don't think you should be letting him back into your house you know and she's going to be watching Elias and because she's got this ability to tell when someone's lying you just know she's going to be feeling her way thinking you know 
can I find it? Is this guy really better? Is he really, you know, changed? Or is the old Elias still hiding somewhere inside? Well, if he is a paranoid schizophrenic, I'm not sure, you know, that you can actually consciously tell um, if he's lying. Well, this lying. is a great thing with Edie, Edie, you know, Edie's skill. It only works, if people don't realize they're telling a lie, then Edie can't pick right. the lie, you know what I mean? So it's a situation if people, if Elias truly believes what he's saying, then Edie's not going to be able to tell. Right. Um, and so she's still only very young and she doesn't really understand the parameters of what she can and can't do. But um, she hates the fact she can tell when people are lying because it's, um, I say it's a curse because, you know, we lie, we lie, each of us lies between 10 and 200 times a day, you know. Um, and, you know, you've been to lunch today and you probably don't think you've told a lie, but you will have. You'll have said to someone, gee, you're looking good. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, I love that outfit. Oh, that's so interesting. Or you said to someone, I'm five minutes away, or it must have gone to spam, or I bought it on special, or I only had the one glass of wine. You know, I mean, we lie all the time for the people we love for the best possible reasons. But just imagine what it would be like to go through life and three little words like, I love you, you know, become damaging because you suddenly think that's a lie. You know, um, and so Evie, you know, it's a curse, but it's, a very interesting vehicle to have in a crime novel to have someone like Evie. So you don't you don't have to explain how it works, but she must be really good at at tells at you know facial expression whatever it is. Yeah. Do you give any explanation? I mean, yeah. Well, it's an interesting because one of the the world's leading expert on lying is a man called Professor Paul Ekman. He's based in California. And I don't remember, uh, quite a number of years ago, there was a TV series called Lie to Me. Right. Um, and that was based on the work of, of, of Paul Ekman. And he talked about micro expressions, the sort of, the tiny, I mean, poke a tell is a good idea, but basically that people give off these tiny, almost subliminal expressions that some people can pick up and some people can't. And it's interesting that in, he, he termed, he, he came up with this term truth wizard. And about one in 500 people have the ability, about an 80% ability to tell when someone's lying, um, not just verbally, but emotionally, like the fake tears, the fake smile, they can pick it up. About, about one in 500 have an 80% ability. And often that is because they have spent their career in law enforcement, in um, prison services, in child services, or they haven't been lied to their entire lives. and. And, you know, and they have just learned to pick up on these signals and clues. There is increasing evidence that when young people have this ability, it's often because they've come from a very violent, dysfunctional background, perhaps a family where they have had to decide in a split second whether they're going to be hit or hugged, you know, that sort of growing up with a hair trigger temper. And so Evie's ability... And I've never fully, you know, explained why, because, you know, I, I want to keep that open. It could come because she's had this incredibly violent past that she's developed this ability. Um, but, yeah, but there are people like Evie that exist. Right. Well, you don't want to be like the great Oz, you know, and draw back the curtain for the reader. I mean, you know, I just... I just wondered if you yourself, you know, had had explored it. I mean, there are other crime writers who have written about, like, say, synesthesia, for example. Um, you know, there are several conditions that have appeared in crime novels where somebody has what appears to be a kind of, if not superhuman, extra human anyway. Yeah. I mean, power. I've done a lot of, yeah, no, and I've done a lot of reading on savantism, if you know what I mean. I mean, there are there are many, many examples like uh of people that have either suffered a fall or an accident or, uh, you know, autistic savant, obviously a very good example, where they suddenly have this rain man-like ability that's visited right. upon. And, and, um, and it can be a slow-growing tumour in the brain. There are so many possible reasons and there are enough examples of people that suddenly, literally fall over, wake up and can speak five languages, never having been taught them. And you think, how is that? How I know, was wasn't there a London cab driver or somewhere that was cited the other day for being able to speak 23 languages? 
you know, we just had a gift for it. I mean, my gift is speed reading. People are always saying you can't possibly read that many books. Well, actually I do. Um, and I've never tried to learn it. You know, I, my mother was very good at it and it's, um, I'm sure it's a combination of eye movement and attention span and memory and, and a whole lot of things. And it's, it's I, interesting because, and I know with, I know, no, you're absolutely right. And I, and I know with someone like Evie, in term, and I, I, yeah, I completely agree that there are other crime novels that have these abilities. Mm-hmm. My initial, I mean, I, I've been fascinated by lying for about 20, 25 years. I began reading the works of Paul Ekman. But I could never work out how I could include it in the book because if you tell someone that you're a crime writer and you're creating a character who can tell when someone's lying, you're on track to write the shortest crime novel in history. <laughs> I mean, if, if Evie Cormack was Hercule Poirot, she'd just get everyone in the room at the very beginning and go, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? Case solved. <laughs> um, right. But the only way to make Evie work in a book was to make her young and damaged and also she's a compulsive liar. So even though she knows when someone else is lying, she can't lie straight in bed. She's always lying to others. She's making up stories. She's sort of, um, and so therefore no one really believes Evie at times other than Cyrus when Evie says you know, things that people just think, well, she's a liar. Why would you believe anything she says? So I sort of, I had to create Evie in such a way to make her so damaged, so unpredictable. Because otherwise, yeah, I mean, she would become the world's greatest detective in, <laughs> and, and be involved in the shortest books in history. Well, that would be a real problem for you. But you know, what just made me think is that you did a substantial amount of ghostwriting. How did you know when you were doing ghostwriting, whether you were being lied to? Well, it's a really, really good question that because there are, there are times at the time, there were times I was lied to. One of the, I mean, this is not a figure that's well known in, in America, but there's a figure well known in, in the UK and Australia called Rolf Harris, who was an entertainer. Um, and about 10 years after I ghostwrote his autobiography, um, he was exposed during the Me Too movement as being a pedophile. And now I never asked him the question when I was working on the book, are you a pedophile? There was never a, I mean, never a, it's not the sort of thing you'd suddenly just come out and ask someone. Um, I always thought he was a bit of a lech, you know, in terms of, he, he used to joke about the fact he was a bit of a, you know, he thought he was being a Jack the Lad, you know, that, you know, pinching a woman on the bum was sort of, you know, cheeky, a cheeky chappy sort of thing rather than, you know, it's an assault, you know, I mean, um, because he was a man of his generation. But I remember when I discovered when he was charged and he went to court being initially beating myself up thinking, why didn't I see it? And then I finally thought, so, well, his wife of 35 years didn't see it. So I sort of figure... Why should I, having spent you know, eight months working with him, why should it have been me? But I did initially think I should have seen it. I should have seen that, you know, um, you know but I mean, it's, it's a case that I'm not Evie Cormack. <laughs> right. Well, no, I just wondered if it had sharpened your own, you know, perception if you worked with that. You know, we're having this whole thing going on with George Santos about a person mm. who clearly is a compulsive liar and fabulous and actually glories in it. And seems to feel like everyone should applaud him for it rather than, you know, and I mean, I I understand the political calculus, which is the Republicans don't want to give up his one vote. The truth is, you know, he shouldn't be. And he's not even the person that those who voted for him thought he was. But what's interesting to me is that nobody picked up on it, even though the trail behind him was absolutely littered. Um, and, and I tell you why that is. It's something that psychologists call the liar's advantage. And that is the fact that if you meet someone for the first time and they say to you that they're an airline pilot, uh, you know, unless they're sort of severe, you're not going to say, oh, that's a lie. Right. But you always think to yourself, well, why would they lie? You know, and most of Sanderson's lying. Why would he lie about that? He didn't need to lie about that. So the liar's advantage is that people are hardwired we're hardwired to believe what people tell us unless we're shown evidence they're untrustworthy. And that is the liar's advantage. And that's why con men and con women are so effective is because they prey on that fact that our initial reaction is, yeah, well, why would he lie? So that's true. You know, and, that's um, true. and we're all moving so fast, we don't really want to dig beneath the surface or whatever facade is 
presented to us. But all of this, of course, is actual grist for the crime novels. So we can't go much further. I mean, we've had this long discussion about the three characters because we don't want to ruin the plot. But you will not be surprised if I say that Elias comes home. We have to deal with all that. And then amazingly, something happens. So what happens, Michael, without going too far into it? Oh, what can I say happens? <laughs> How much can I say? Well, it says um, right here on the back of the book um, that let's just say that a man is murdered. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the, at, in the midst of all of, in the midst of all of, um, you know, Cyrus having to deal with the idea that Elias is coming home, he does have, he is a forensic psychologist, he is employed by the police, right. and he is asked to investigate the murder of a man and the disappearance of his daughter. And so that, and it turns out that this daughter that's disappeared has disappeared from the bar that Evie, Evie Cormack works in. So there's a link, the two, the two cases are going to link over. Mm -hmm. So Cyrus has got this to deal with and doing his sort of day job, so to speak, at the same time, is he's got Elias coming home, and um, and then you have I think you know to me the the richest sort of area those moments when Elias and Evie because you're waiting for that time that Elias meets Evie, and from that moment onwards you're sort of thinking there are going to be sort of fireworks here, you know? and 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 without giving anything away, I would like the idea that I I subvert people's expectations. They cert they think that they think that certain people are the villains in this story uh, and they turn out to be the heroes in the story and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, that makes it really fun. We also should bear in mind that um, you have to always ask yourself in any well-constructed crime plot what the role of coincidence is. Is there, in fact, any coincidence or is something that happens a real coincidence? Um, and, 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 you know... And it's really interesting that, isn't it? Because I, I mean, there are several stories of mine where I often worry too much about coincidence. I mean, because there is a, I think it might have been, um, I'm trying to remember, it's a, there's a famous quote about writers having to avoid writing with God on your lap. And, 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 and that idea that if, if your plot relies too much on an outrageous coincidence, right. then you probably should rewrite your plot. Because we all, but we all know outrageous coincidence exist. We've all bumped into people that we haven't seen in years, just literally minutes after we thought about them. You haven't seen them in years and suddenly you see them and you think, well, that's spooky. I mean, coincidences happen. Right. But you've already mentioned that the daughter that disappears is somebody yeah. that works in yeah, yeah. Evie's bar. So right there, the astute reader says, aha, is this coincidence? It's a coincidence, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you sort of... Um, yeah, and and uh, yeah, and I think, um, I mean, because you know, for the the Evie and Cyrus books are told in the two voices. You're hearing from Evie's first person point of view and Cyrus's first point of view, first person point of view. You also you ultimately need to make sure that one story doesn't overpower the other, and that the two the two stories sort of meet, which is what right. a lot of a lot of my plotting difficulties are always to make sure that both their stories gel. Well, that's another interesting facet, I think, of Michael's writing is that there are multiple points of view. Um, often it isn't a single narrator. It isn't necessarily in first person or past or whatever it might be. Um, you know, that the it's a really tricky thing, I think, to have multiple narrators and make it all make it all work, make the voices really distinctive. There are limits to a first-person narrative, which is then the person telling the story can only know things that that person can actually know. Whereas if you have multiple narrators, then the reader gets to know things that maybe one of the narrators doesn't know um, at all. But, you know, it takes yeah. a lot of skill. It does. And most of, most of my books have been first-person and mainly in the, a reflection on the fact that I was a ghostwriter for so long where I wrote you know, 15 autobiographies, help people, 15 famous people write their, their autobiographies in the first person, right. that I'm, I'm more comfortable in the first person. It's not, not many crime writers do it first person because it does limit you, as you say, to things have to happen within eyesight or earshot of, you know, and, and um, or you could do what Harlan Coben does and just go first person and suddenly when you need it, just drop a third person. <laughs> well, you know, and that that is not that uncommon. And years and years ago, I think it was the same kind of right around the time that the P.D. James story I mentioned to you, we did a conference in Scottsdale 
1996. Actually, the three guests of honor were P.D. James, Tony Hillerman, and Robert V. Parker. Um, but then we did, um, we had the next year that was so successful, we, we brought together a group of authors, and one of them um, did a really brilliant uh, paper, which we then published, actually got nominated for an Edgar for publishing the collected papers of this conference, about Treasure Island. And he pointed out that Stevenson worked on Treasure Island and he got stuck and he just couldn't go on with the story. And I don't remember whether he went from first person to third or third person to first, but whatever he went from it was. First person to third. He went was from that first it? Third, right. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he recognized then that, you know, the narrative needed to, to have this switch. And um, that most people who read Treasure Island don't even they think don't say. Oh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's an interesting, you know, and, and, and taste, things change as well. It's a bit like, you know, we, we now live in an era where you stay in someone's head. Even if you're going to switch, you, in, in, in any particular scene, you're in one person's, you know, head. Right. You're not suddenly having what the person they're with is thinking. You're just having what your, your sort of person is thinking. Whereas going back to, you know, the great Russian writers of the past, they would in any given, they'd be in everyone's head at the same time. <laughs> um, and now we'd normally say, oh, no, you've jumped point of view there. You should stay in one point of view and then break a chapter or break a scene and then go into another point of view. But styles change. Well, you know, but it depends on the skill of the writer. It depends on the story that you want to tell. You know, I mean, as you point out, you write in first person, but now in this book, you can write in you know, more than it's multiple first person. Yeah. Well, okay. But you know, it's two different voices and, um, you know, an awful lot of people start in first person because it's easier, you know, you're telling the story yourself, but I do think as writers grow, and as you've pointed out, you've written 17, maybe is this number 18? This is number 17. Number 17. You know, you're bound to learn things over the course of yeah, and, and, and as you say, novels. yeah, I've done third person. I've done, I, I've done it all now in terms of different books yeah. a bit different, different sort of, um, yeah. So I've, you know, I've experimented with them all, but probably tend to gravitate back to first person. Yeah, but don't you think that the, you know, the story probably tells you at this point how you want to tell it? Yeah, unfortunately. Maverick, because I don't know the story when I start, I don't have it plotted out. Making like, it up as you go along. I make, up, I make it up as I go along. And I never know how it's going to end when I start or even halfway through, I rarely know how it's going to end. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's a, yeah, I, I write myself into lots of corners at times. <laughs> well, obviously, successful year, you wouldn't have won so many awards. And you are a very, very fine stylist, which makes you a pleasure to read. Um, since you've already said that you have no idea what comes next, do I dare ask you if you have another book in the works? I have. I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm doing another Evie and Cyrus book, uh, which is going to be called um, Before You Found Me. And it's going to be talking about origin stories earlier. It's going to be more, we're going to learn there's a, a modern day story, but then we're also going to learn about Evie's full backstory um, mm -hmm. in this one. You know, we really unpack her past and and discover where she came from and how she got in that secret room, um, you know, in, where, in the house where the man had been murdered. Because we've never really, we, we've got little snippets in the books where she's dropped little hints, but she's never revealed even to Cyrus the full detail of how she got in that So room. you've already seeded the story, but you haven't limited yourself with too much information that yeah. will force you. Well, I I remember when I wrote the first in the series, Good Girl, Bad Girl, and people said to me, because at, at the end of that book, you don't discover how Evie got in the room. You discover a lot, but you don't discover. And people sort of said, well, how did she get in the room? People would come to me and say, well, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, I haven't decided yet. They're going, but you've just, how can you not decide? And I'm thinking, well, and you have to, I then, I was stuck with the clues I planted in the first book. That's I right. Thought, I couldn't change from those. I had to, and there were times I wanted to go, oh, why didn't I put this in the first book? But I just simply had to live with, live with what I'd put down there. It, it's limiting, but it's a challenge. Well, it keeps you busy, you know, yeah. and probably keeps you interested. Let's call Jacob up and see if we have any questions from the audience or if Jacob has any questions, because he often does. I love this magic square where suddenly it's revealed, right? Hi there. Hi, Michael. 
Uh, yeah, you certainly have a lot of questions on uh, Facebook. Um, I think we have a time uh, to get to a few of them. Um, Tonya Ludwig had two questions for you. Um, what is your writing process like? Do you have a standard daily schedule or routine? Okay. Oh, my writing process, it's very much I write every day. Um, and I mean every day. I had a journalist come and interview me once. So I was supposed to spend three days following me around to write 10,000 word piece on the life as a writer. And he gave up after a day. Um, and, and I said, why? And I said, well, you don't do anything. And I said, you're right. I sit, <laughs> I sit and I make shit up. That is my life. It's not very exciting. <laughs> but he said, but even on Christmas Day, he would talk to my wife. What did you do on Christmas Day? She said, well, he had dinner and then he went and wrote. <laughs> and so uh, so I write every day. It, it, otherwise, I, 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 I fall. I, I get terrified that my idea is terrible and I'm going to be exposed as being a complete fraud who doesn't know what he's doing. So I have to write every day just to keep telling myself it's okay. It's not a disaster. Not yet. Are you a morning writer or a nighttime writer or afternoon? Do you have a time? I'm an all-day writer. All day. I, yeah, well, until I tend to start at sort of 8.30 in the morning and I'll finish at 5. Now, a lot of that time will be research or, uh, you know what I say, I mean, the, the internet has been the greatest tool and the greatest waste of time ever created for a writer because I can, I can honestly go online to research whether a human hair, whether you can tell whether a hair came from a dead body or a live person. And I, and, and, and I can find that out within about five minutes. But two hours later, I'm looking at basketball results from some obscure American college. And I don't even follow, follow college basketball. But suddenly you just go down this rabbit hole and uh, I'm gone. Um, this one's about um, Cyrus and Elias. Um, how long did it take you to develop those characters? And uh, were there a relationship or circumstance based on an actual case or a string of cases? I guess a string of cases. I mean, there have been, and I'm sure cases in many cases in America like this, where uh, one in particular I remember, a paranoid schizophrenic um, killed his parents and his sister survived. And she stood, had to, you know, go through this whole process that Elias and, and Cyrus have gone through. Um, and And I remember thinking at the time, would she just abandon this brother? Would she stand by him? Would she visit him in the in the in the psychiatric hospital? I mean, um, or would she completely disown this this? Um, and she was older. She was a grown up when this happened, and the brother was a grown up. Whereas um, Cyrus is very young. But I always remembered that case, thinking, what would I do in that situation? And um, and it's so much as you know, so many, all writers will tell you is that what if moment, that what if hook that you think yeah what if what if that was me how would I react would I could I forgive would I forgive and um and I guess that that's being played out many times in every different country you know where you know it's it's no different from you know mass shootings you know a you know a teenager that involved in a in a mass shooting in America let's say and we had we have to talk about Kevin the Lion Shriver book covered this and, and many other books have covered it as a parent you still you must continue to love your child but how, how do you do you forgive them i mean how how does that work i mean i'm fascinated by that sort of moral and ethical dilemma now was that your initial inspiration for the plot or did you sit on it for a while after you read that um i guess the initial inspiration came from came from Evie, wanting to create a character like Evie that could tell when someone was lying. And so when I wrote Good Girl, Bad Girl, it was about introducing Evie. And I did want to introduce a new psychologist. So I, I created Cyrus and I, and I wanted to give him a tragic backstory. Um, and, and I thought, well, what if he was the lone survivor of, of, you know, and then I suddenly thought, well, hold on, maybe it's even more interesting. If he's not the lone survivor, what if it's his brother? That commits the crime and then he has to live in the shadow and so one thing sort of led to another you know in terms of um and uh you know each of you know so often in that writing i mean stephen king talks about this on writing that sometimes you could look at your idea and you might flesh it out and you suddenly think to yourself hold on what if i just change my main character from a man to a woman how would that change the story oh and suddenly it opens up a whole new avenue of, of exploration and so 
I don't plot in advance. So me, it's very much that idea of just letting it run and 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 seeing where it finishes. Great. Um, Jell Cell asked, um, do you ever experiment to keep yourself interested in writing? I'm assuming just outside of your genre, usually, or your comfort zone. Um, I read mostly outside my genre. Um, and that's because I get very easily influenced by what I'm reading. If I if I begin reading a James Lee Burke, I will suddenly begin to write like a very poor man's version of James Lee Burke. Um, you know, it's like the voice. I mean, because I, in first person, I create this voice and I want to keep that voice in my head. And if I read a really good first person, I suddenly find that that voice begins overtaking. And um, and so I, I, I avoid reading in my genre or in first person when I'm writing in it. Um, but I do look, I, I have great plans, which my publishers um, encourage me to do. I would love to write a Nick Hornby style, David Nichols style, sort of tragic comedy type book at some point. Because um, I try to put a lot of humor in my books anyway. But I would let people know. I wouldn't expect my crime readers. I would let them know it was a different book. I wouldn't expect my my crime readers to pick it up, thinking they're going to get the same thing as they normally get. I would, I would, I wouldn't publish under a fake name. I would probably just do like Ian Banks did with Ian M Banks books and just slight, just use my initials or something, just to let people know it's different. Great. I think we're running short on time, Barbara. No, we're okay. If we're okay. Else, yeah. We're all right. Yeah, we definitely have a few more questions. Uh, did you want to talk about um, your background in investigative journalism and how that uh, influenced your writing over the years? Yeah, I mean, journalism, probably the two things that influenced me, journalism, because I grew up in very small country towns and, and in a very idyllic childhood, and I don't think I'd experienced crime ever, you know, in my, in my childhood, you know, um, and or real tragedy or real hardship, you know. Um, and so journalism, I felt as though I wanted to write from a very young age, but I had nothing to write about. So journalism gathered material, investigative journalism gathered material. And I met criminals and presidents and kings and psychopaths and, and so many people. So journalism gave me a body of, of knowledge to draw upon. And then ghostwriting helped me capture voice because each of the people I ghostwrote for and I go straight from everyone from Jerry Hallowell of the Spice Girls to, you know, actors, to politicians, each of them had a unique voice. And that taught me how to capture voice and, and hopefully create characters that live and breathe on the page. And, and if they live and breathe in, for me, they should live and breathe for the reader, hopefully. Now, because of your background, do you, do you find it easy to uh, write from your subconscious or do you still need to be kind of knee deep in research? Um, I think because of my background, I need the research. All my books have been set in real life places. And the journalist in me means that factually they have to be correct. I have to have walked that street. I mean, I periodically get picked up by people who say, oh, by the way, you can't turn right at that intersection. It's a one-way street. And often I'll go back and find out, yeah, but it was only became a one-way street about five months ago. You could turn right there when I was there. But um and people contact me and say, oh, sadly, that, that laundromat burned down. I'm saying, well, I can't do much about that. <laughs> you know, um, but, um, but no, I, the journalist in me means that I have to set it in real places and the research has to be as accurate as, as, you know, I'm trying to create fiction that reads like nonfiction. I want the readers to think this, God, this sounds so true. This could really be happening. So that's, and the journalism background um, is part of that, wanting to create something that reads like it's it's really happening. Great. Well, one last uh, question for you personally. Would you forgive your brother if you found yourself in that circumstance? Uh, I think I would struggle. I think I think that's one of the things that I've always created with my main characters, whether it be Joe Lachlan or Cyrus. I mean, I am I am basically a coward. Okay, I'm my mother's son. My mother once screamed so loudly in a cinema they stopped the film and turned the lights up. That's me. I don't watch horror films. I don't watch scary shows. I scare myself when I write. The characters I create, like Cyrus and Joe Lachlan, they're braver than I am. They're more intelligent than I am. They're more forgiving than I am. They're more insightful than I am. 
and I think that comes down to the wish fulfillment. I wish that I would be able to give, forgive my brother, but I don't think I could. You know, I thought about that too when we were talking and what gets in my way is that the the risk to other people. I mean, mm. I, I'm, I'm all right with you on capital punishment, you know, because indeed there are really terrible cases and maybe locking somebody up for, you know, many years is worse than if you actually executed them. I mean, that's a, a horrible way of life. But I think I saw too many cases where people got it wrong about yeah. what people should be released in society and then everyone else paid a price for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it does come down to I, what I keep telling myself, uh, Barbara, is that we only ever hear about when it goes wrong and there can right. be tens of thousands of cases where it, it doesn't go wrong. Well, that's right. right. But how do you know which one it is? I know, exactly. You know? And it is, and I think this is just extra burden. And if, if, if I was in Cyrus' situation, it was my brother, I would basically watch them like, I mean, I would spend my, the rest of my life, I would just be spent hovering over them. And it wouldn't be about protecting myself, it would be about protecting other people. Because if if he did reoffend and, and hurt someone else, I don't think I could forgive myself. Right. Well, you would feel responsible. And, you know, I will also say, since I have reached the age where these questions come up and I've spent time with him, a full-time caregiver job is exhausting. Mm. And it does it does, in fact, put you in jail in yeah. a way that you might not imagine. So none of these are easy questions, but that's kind of the point of reading Michael's book or thinking them. about yeah. these things. It really is. So anyway, um, that wasn't much of a Valentine, <laughs> Valentine Day ending here. But um, Michael, it's always such a pleasure to see you. And now that I know that you might actually come to the United States. Yeah, well, woman, yes, I'm so yes. excited. Yay, because I'll find copies of the Night Fairy and make everybody read it. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much for the hour that you've spent with us. Jacob, thanks for your time. Um, Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. you Enjoy the rest of your evening or the rest of your day if you are down. And to everyone watching from America, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you very much, Michael. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.